0: welcome 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 to the linen suit and plastic tie podcast this is the podcast where we work to dissect and analyze the amazing the powerful the epic the cool the excelsior the incredible power of storytelling and learn how to harness that power and unlock that power in your everyday lives i'm Gorv. and i'm kevin
1: so, grow up, I have a question for you today. Oof. Do you know what a jinseng root is?
0: Well, Kev, does that happen to be a magical Chinese root that is also grown in Marathon, Wisconsin?
1: Damn, that's, that's a great answer. A lot of good knowledge. I wonder how you got that. Um, but yes, this is going to be an episode uh, about a unique, unconventional story uh, that involves this magical root of same, but...
0: We're talking the storytelling behind agricultural Chinese roots now? That's where we're at?
1: Yeah, we're uh, going all the way back to the culture of so a lot of things, apparently. But how this all started was um, one of many of these weekends where Grov and I made trips to comic book stores. I discovered a, a comic book out of an entire shelves of superheroes and fantasies. It is uh, a picture of two Chinese women holding up this Jinxian Roots, and the comic book is properly named Jinxian Roots. It was so weird, nothing you would expect out of a, you know, a typical comic book store. And Grov suggested that if you see something weird, you should buy it.
0: If you see something weird, always buy it. This is a PSA for you. If you see it if it's weird buy it and explore something weird go out and explore something weird today back to you
1: yeah so follow the advice bought it got hooked loved it that issue happened to be about northeastern china which is again why would an american author write a story about that so very luckily we uh, got connected with the author of the book craig thompson who if you know anything about comic books, you've probably heard of Blankets and it's one of the best known titles of comic book non-fictions out there. And Jensen Roots uh, is another uh, one of his non-fiction comic book uh, where Craig dives into his upbringing, working in the farms, the history of Singh, Chinese culture, the Hmong people, South Korea, and the unexpected ways that a Chinese person such as myself connect somehow with uh, Americans, American farming lives and the under told story of farmers in America and around the world. So uh, without further ado, let's get into this unconventional conversation with Craig. you pronounce your full name for us yeah it's Craig Thompson all right and to start off our conversation Craig can you tell us a little bit about yourself what is your story
2: all right my name is Craig Thompson I'm a graphic novelist I feel like that term is is kind of universal now people suddenly know what a graphic novel is but say 20 years ago uh that wasn't pretty much a mainstream terminology people are very confused if you brought up that term But basically, I do uh, like book length comic books. Until recently, I've only done 300, 400, 700 page graphic novels. And more recently, I'm doing a serialized comic book for the first time. Uh, I grew up in like middle of nowhere, rural Midwest uh, of America in Wisconsin, and uh, pretty isolated uh, upbringing. And really, it's this kind of career in comics that's really extended my, my boundaries and my relationship with the world and kind of got me out of the trappings of a small town.
0: I think you've, you've built your career in this kind of autobiographical genre of graphic novels, right? It's a genre that people don't often think about a medium with comics because it's the medium versus genre debate, right? When comic books is a medium, it's an art form. It has uh, amazing writing. And I do want to advocate there are some amazing superhero stories out there there are there's some new really good ones adult ones i'm in the middle of reading the invincible arc right now which uh blankets has a cameo in um, really i
2: had no yeah. idea
0: you had no idea oh well, let me send you the screenshot it's actually funny i sent yeah. it to kevin the other day um in the oh, yeah. uh, in commendium one of invincible uh but yeah uh there's some amazing superhero stories but something amazing about comic books is that it has so much room for so many amazing genres like what you've worked in so tell us a little bit about why the autobiographical genre made sense for you. Talk about getting that work made, getting that work sold. I think um, that's really hard in this space because people make convicts, that's for kids, or convicts, that's superheroes, right? When I'm like, well, you just saw a movie, how is words with art less like <laughs> intellectually stimulating than that? But tell us about getting that book sold and the success it had.
2: Uh, so with Blankets, I mean, that was a totally different era. Again, that that was, came out 20 years ago, almost to the day. And the graphic novels really wasn't established as a medium yet. I mean, of course, there had been Mouse, which to me by Art Spiegelman is still kind of the greatest graphic novel of all time. I don't think anyone's topped Mouse yet. But there was also uh, Chris Ware's uh, Jimmy Corrigan had come out in the year 2000. That was three years before Blankets. Uh, But that was serialized, you know, like, so there wasn't this sort of thing of just all in one swoop, putting out a huge 500 page comic book. But I was working with a really small publisher here in in Portland, Oregon, which is where I'm living now. And I've lived most of my career. And uh, it was just two guys, small company, and they were doing indie comics, which is co- another niche within the niche of of comics. And they didn't have any money or anything, you know, like my advance for blankets was about three hundred dollars to do a five hundred page book. So that's not what I was paying the bills with. On the other hand, they weren't really controlling. They kinda gave me free reign to do whatever I wanted. I knew that per my contract, well, I just have to deliver a book and, and they're gonna have to publish it. So I felt like a little kind of almost like snarky uh you know, privilege to be like, well, okay, so it doesn't matter if it's a hundred-page book or a five-hundred-page book; they're going to have to publish it. Um, and then after Blankets is kind of when my real career started. Before then, I was doing uh, freelance illustration as a, as a career to pay the bills. I was doing mostly stuff for kids magazines. Nickelodeon had a really thriving kids magazine at the time. Uh, National Geographic had a kids' magazine. This was still the era of periodical magazines, so that's what what paid the bills during that era.
0: And blankets, of course, was huge. It's been on all these lists. I think you can pick it up in honestly any comic book store at this point. What was that experience like? When it, when you're like, oh, this is catching on. Like, how did and it's something so deeply personal. What was that experience like for you? It changed everything. You know, I I,
2: don't, I still don't think I've really recovered from that whole experience. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, I didn't expect anyone to see that book. You know, I thought maybe I'd get 2000 readers, you know, and, and instead the book was published in like 20 languages and I traveled the world and I was like a working class kid who had really, I hadn't gone to college. You know, I really didn't have any real life experience. I was quite naive and sheltered. So um, to then have that springboard to travel and meet people and learn things and you know, I always say that I thought the book uh, would never find an audience. Like, I, you know, I was like, well, even in the U.S., are people that grew up in urban centers going to relate to this super isolated rural upbringing? People who grew up in secular households, are they going to be able to relate to all these religious themes? I felt like it, it was itself very niche because it was about this very specific sheltered childhood. But I think there ended up being all these universal themes around... First love, around family, sibling dynamics, you know, faith and or falling from faith. Those themes prove to be universal around the world. And, you know, like I would say the number one readership of Blankets is probably India or maybe of my books in general. And then after that, I mean, after that, it's a debate, but I'm like, I've, I've had great success traveling in the Middle East In, like, uh, South Korea, huge, huge blankets, like, devoted fan base there. So, yeah, those themes, they aren't... I I guess what they say is, like, when you're specific, when you try to make it as specific as possible, it becomes more universal.
0: You know, that's so important, too, about the comic book industry. I think, you know, I think this is one of the things I love about this industry is I've read so many cool niche stories. uh, So many cool things have come up recently, so many... Over the years, uh, there's these stories that would not have been made into movies, right? Would not have been made into TV shows because there's huge risks, right? To make movies, TV shows. With comic books, there's a lot less, right? Um, There's a lot less risk to get these stories told. And that's how we had so much amazing stuff uh, in the non-superhero genre. Like in uh, Image puts out so many cool things, all these independent creators. You mentioned Mouse, which is one of the most iconic graphic novels of all time, your work. And it's one of the beautiful things about this industry is that you can try things and you can get niche and you can learn that, oh, people don't have to have gone through the exact same experience or this doesn't have to be based on IP we've heard for the last 70 years for it to find an audience. And I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of this industry.
1: Going back to Blanket's a little bit, because we are in the year 2023 and the book first came out in 2003. It's been 20 years. Are there any parts of the story where you would take a look at how you told it back then and feel like you might have told it differently now?
2: Well, definitely. I think every book is just sort of like a little bookmark in that moment in my life. Like, I couldn't write any one of my books at a different time. It'd be very strange to write a book like Blankets now as an almost 50 year old man. It'd be almost creepy, I think. It'd be like kind of looking back on a high school romance and making a book about it. But it wasn't it was an appropriate thing to be doing at age 23 when I was still sort of, my heart was still caught up in some of those things. So, yeah, I mean, when I look at old books, it's like a good thing happens. Actually, when I'm working on a project, I can only see the flaws because it's still within my control and the page I'm working on that day is the page I hate the most. Usually like a week later I can look at that page and be like, it's okay. The flaws are okay. I don't, it's out of my control now. And that, uh, experience increases as time goes by so once a book is in print it really feels like it's been born it's its own entity uh it's no longer a physical part of me and really it does have a life of its own the way a child might blankets might be the little golden child in my family but it's it's different from me at this point you know i'm a different person i couldn't couldn't write that book there are elements that i envy a lot where i look back and i'm like oh i had like a sort of creative purity at that age you know mm-hmm. so i was 23 25 so full of like this creative energy and youth and i can see that in the pages so i'm grateful for that so it sort of is a time stamp on who i was as an author and person at that time and then there's other elements that i'm sure are just completely cringy to me <laughs> but are they cringy for the right reason are they just cringy because i'm more of a you know, uh, like a cynical adult at this point. Who knows?
0: Was there ever the temptation to do spinoffs or sequels or get into some of those oh, side characters?
2: That's a great question because there's been a lot of pressure over the years from publishers and readers to do Blankets 2, basically, the sequel. Um, because, you know, honestly, the books that followed Blankets, which are Carte de Voyage and Habibi and uh, Space Dumplings none of those books have had the impact of Blankets. Um, so there was always this pressure to, to basically do a sequel, and I always resisted. I'm like, no, I don't want to repeat myself. I don't want to exploit, you know, or, or ride on the coattails of a previous success. You know, that's, I just want to reinvent myself with each project. And this newest book, Ginseng Roots, uh, just sort of organically ended up being a form of a sequel and and even that sort of happened reluctantly i wasn't going to lean into the auto bio in this new project uh but as i got deeper into it i realized that that was the actual important story um and i should also like specify too like uh previous to ginseng roots i've only done graphic novels so i've only done book length comics blankets was almost 600 pages habibi was almost 700 pages Uh, Even my lighter books, like Space Dumplings, is like three hundred some pages. But those projects require so much like isolation. You know, Saturn in his cavern, just hammering away at the forge for years and years. Um, And I really wanted to break that cycle. I just knew I didn't have the stamina for it again. I'm like, I wanted to work in smaller bursts and get feedback from readers much more soon get that sort of validation maybe um, but also I, I wanted to reconnect with like what comic books were to me as a kid and as a kid they of course were just these disposable newsstand pamphlets you know that came out every month I'm like oh, I want a chance to do that so, so with Ginseng Roots yes built into the, the whole project was like this is going to be a comic book series um, and I wanted it to be kind of organic I didn't write an entire script for the whole I had an outline for the series and that's about it and then I just took each issue at a time each chapter at a time and released it the initial inspiration was to do a book about ginseng which is a you know probably best known as a medicinal herb in Chinese medicine it's maybe number two most famous herb in Chinese medicine uh, with maybe reishi mushroom being above it being the king (sighs) Uh, and, uh, and I wanted the plant and the root itself to be the protagonist of the series. And I was going to use it as a springboard to explore a lot of different topics. And one of those is, is global trade because ginseng is the origins of the U.S.'s trade relationship with China, which becomes more and more important, you know, every year. So before this was ever a, a nation, French Jesuit priests were exporting wild ginseng from the new world. Um, back to China. They knew right away that this was a lucrative herb. Um, and then the same happened with the um, American Revolution was basically funded by ginseng sales. This newly minted country owed this incredible debt to France. So uh, one of the first things to pay off that debt was shipping basically furs and ginseng to China. And and so like this is the origins of our country is tied to this root. So I wanted to focus on the root, but when I would tell people my elevator pitch, I could see their eyes glaze over. Unless, in fact, maybe they grew up with Chinese medicine and they had more of an intimate knowledge. But otherwise, there are people who are like, oh, like ginger? And I'm like, no, ginseng. And, you know, people have this very, like, um, uh, I don't know, human-centric sort of narratives that they glom onto. So I could tell people weren't that interested in the plant. So then I would say, well, you know, I worked in ginseng as a kid from ages 10 years old to 20. I would work 40-hour weeks in my summer working in ginseng fields in rural Wisconsin. And then people's interest was piqued. They're like, wait, what? Ginseng in Wisconsin? And what? You were like 10 years old working 40-hour weeks? So that's when I realized, like, oh, the personal story might be the even more important element of this. And I started by focusing again on my relationship with my brother because we're the ones that did that work together. But then I learned actually from my sister that she had a very complicated relationship with the ginseng, like she got out of the work, she hated the work and she found uh, that she was able to do uh, babysitting as summer work instead. But she still had this entire narrative about like, she was probably the most traumatized by ginseng of all of us. And I must clarify that my brother and I, I don't think we feel traumatized by ginseng work we were very grateful for it because we were like poor working class kids and so working in the ginseng gave us spending money of our own and i probably would not be working in comics if it wasn't for that spending money so we were getting paid a dollar an hour to do this work and that translated to one comic book an hour for us and so we were stoked you know i, I don't think we saw it as oppressive as it kind of was <laughs> for us it meant like We could buy comic books and then later skateboards and whatever else.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a common theme we see throughout our show when we talk to storytellers, how important it is to bring in that human element, to bring in the human story, finding a way to connect with people. It's it's come up with so many of our creators and our storytellers just explaining how once they started writing, they realized, oh, we have to tell this personal thing. It makes it more impactful. It makes it more deep. Um, I think it's really interesting in your work, too, um, like you were talking about doing a serialized thing. That's a huge way of comics started, getting that immediate feedback, hearing what fans are liking, building stuff around them, learning how they're connecting. What was that experience like creating this time, this time with this book, where you are getting this immediate feedback, especially when you're telling a more historical story, which is a little bit anti some of the mainstream comic book literature?
2: To be honest, like, it was a little... Um disappointing a little bit. It wasn't as much as I wanted because along with reader feedback um, and, and and say critical feedback in general, I was also secretly hoping that um, interview subjects would come out of the woodwork oh, and experts that someone might like chime in and be like, oh, you got that wrong. I'm actually a scientist that does this sort of studies in this. And then they could then end up being an element of the book. But as I say that out loud, I do realize that some of the relationships that stemmed out of this project I mean I never could have in my wildest dreams thought they were going to happen and it's interesting what sort of emerged organically through this process and it did help to have like a couple of issues in print when I was going to like the ginseng festival in my hometown and saying this is what I'm working on and it helped people it was like kind of a business card to help some people take me seriously like okay I'll sit down with an interview with you probably the most important parts of the book to me are in the middle. And they're the uh, chapters that focus on Chua Vang, who's a Hmong immigrant farmer in my, I I should clarify, his father was an immigrant and he's a a second generation. Um, But he's uh, comes from this like legacy of first generation Hmong immigrants growing ginseng. Um, And then also uh, there's an issue focused on Will Sue who comes from a similar family of Taiwanese immigrants. Um, And I met with both of them a couple weeks ago. I went back to Wisconsin two weeks ago and reconnected with both Will and with Chua to just sort of like gather their thoughts about the series as a whole. And I talked with Will, who's one of the biggest growers in the region. Like his family is is a mega grower. By agricultural standards, you'd say they were corporate farming, but they are still a family farm. And I said, you know, I also did two and a half days of interviews with the other major grower in my hometown, and I didn't end up using any of that footage. And um, I sort of realized I had a little bit of a bias because the other grower was, was a white farmer. And I don't think it was a conscious thing, but somehow like the immigrant story just emerged as being integral to what ginseng roots was you know like i ended up as an author having a bias towards that i mean i think chua vang's story will sue's story there was something really emotional at the heart of their family stories and it was a very much a family story that i glommed onto. to but it, as much as it was that it was also about the immigrant experience so i don't know if i would have predicted that that's what this book was going to be about
1: This conversation is a great example of how this story is bringing people together in very surprising ways. It just so happens that, you know, we were in the comic book store when issue 11 came out, uh, and that's an issue about China, about your journey there. And, you know, I read it was, I I didn't know what I was going to expect, but it's such accurate depictions of you know, what the country looked like and the the vivid details of people's lives there. And that's what intrigued me to actually buy in the rest of the series. And as I read through it, there's just this consistent feeling of surprise of your depiction of uh, your early life as a farmer, right? And I think people have a perception of what America is like as a country. We talk about labels here a lot on this podcast. When you think about America, you think about New York or LA, Silicon Valley, you know, advanced technologies and all that stuff. What people don't realize though, is America is one of the world's top agricultural producers. Agriculture is such a huge part of this country and its economy. But I think depictions of the rural life and farm activity in America it's been lacking. So it's very kind of refreshing, I think, for me as I read through that. And also finding resonance and connections with my own cultural roots, because coming from China, you get very well educated on the agricultural history and culture um, in China. And people, you know, have, even though I'm a city boy, I never really did farming myself. Those are the stories I kind of resonate with because that's what you get taught growing up. And it's very interesting for me to see, you know, how these seemingly very distant people on opposite side of the world can have such similar stories and, and values. And I think that's really thanks to the stories you're depicting here in Jensen Roots.
2: Thank you. I mean, that's the best possible feedback I could receive. Um, and, and as you were talking about it, I was I was just thinking like, Maybe I'm the only cartoonist who grew up working in ginseng. I'm not sure. Actually, I know I'm not the only because in, in issue seven, there's a, uh, an artist, Dua Shaka Hur, who, uh, who's among cartoonists in in the same town I grew up in, in Wisconsin, uh, that did a, a story about working in ginseng as a kid, too. But we're probably the only two. But in Los Angeles, there must be plenty of storytellers that came from small rural towns farming towns and it it is weird that there aren't more stories or depictions of farming life out there you associate it maybe with country music and sort of right-wing politics Uh, but the first thing that popped into mind was minari that 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 movie that peter yoon movie that came out a couple of years ago uh, about like a korean-american family that uh, moves to like rural midwest like arkansas to to start a farm It reminds me a little bit of Werner Herzog's Strozek. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly, but famous Herzog film about this band of weirdos from Berlin or Austria, I can't remember, who moves to rural Wisconsin to pursue the American dream. It'd be fun to watch those two movies back to back. And there's a chicken theme in both of those movies too. But other than Minari, I have a really hard time conjuring any movies or are great stories about farming right now it's weird that it's that it's 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 not avoided it's also weird that again it's associated with maybe right-wing politics and country music because if you look at you know like farmers are generally democrats you know they're self-employed they're you know they're it's a very diverse population you know like especially now i mean who does farm work it's it's immigrants it's migrants you know it's mexican workers you know but also the over the last hundred years, it's been like, you know, Chinese workers and then, you know, Korean and Filipino. And, you know, like, so it's also the immigrant story. I don't know. I, it is interesting that it's not a story that we focus on more. Maybe it's not sexy enough for cinema, but I'd like to change that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the example I've been using is Yellowstone. Uh That's probably the big example oh. right now that's been really taking up steam. It's the biggest show right now. It's really developed and analyzed this world a little bit more, it's still a little bit more, you know, secession-y and mafia-esque and, like, a little bit more fictionalized, but I think this is something really key about storytelling in general is that some of the best stories in any industry, whether you're creating a new app, whether you're telling a new TV show, whether you're writing a new book, it's about finding those stories that aren't being told and finding that audience that's being underserved and finding a way to super-serve them, right? Right. And this is the one thing about Yellowstone that did so well is that it was, it's a huge part of the country that just wasn't, their story wasn't being told. And Yellowstone and books like yours and farming books and things like that is able to tap into them because they're not being represented. And by telling stories that connect with them, you access this huge audience that's been overlooked and it's huge storytelling. You, you got to find that audience that's being underserved and find a way to superserve them.
2: I agree completely. I don't think I had that sort of uh, agenda, though. I, I, you know, I didn't deliberately try to figure out, uh, in a sort of a mercenary way of like, who's the untapped market the way a Hollywood studio would, would but, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I guess I just, like you know, on a gut level, I was feeling that missing, and also you write what you know, right? I mean, yep. I don't have a lot of experiences, but I happen to have this very weird idiosyncratic childhood working in ginseng gardens
1: so i'm curious what your audience of the series has uh, been looking like did a lot of urban american readers reach out to you i wonder you know what the urban population's reaction is well, to such a you know farming and rural based story
2: well i think comic book readers are probably primarily urban you know i think yeah. um so I yeah, if I were to, if I could break it down, I'd say probably most of the readers are, are already urban. To me, it's the opposite. is more exciting to like get small town readers. Um, I've done a couple of events back in near my hometown too. And to have people who have never seen a comic book in their life and working class people picking up a comic book because of like what we were talking about earlier, representation, because like, whoa, this is, this we can respond, you know, like we can relate to this that's much more unique and exciting to me, but I, I, yeah, over, over my whole career and including this project, I think my readers are primarily urban, you know, they live in urban centers. They're literate, you know, they have comic shops they have access to, you know, I, I think there's, there's a quote in issue 11 that you were referencing from uh, the translator that my brother and I hired to travel to Northeast China together, uh, Nina. And um, she's like, I had no idea that there were, children living in America who did peasant labor.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was my reaction.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And so even that was such a great talking point of like, I laughed at the word peasant and then we kind of debated the word and she's like, oh, I I mean, farm labor, you know, she's like, there isn't a real differentiation between farmer and peasant in whatever word she was using. Hmm. But uh, she's like, yeah, I didn't know American kids even did farm work. Just that alone blew her mind, you know. Now and now, more than ever, probably there aren't a lot of white kids doing farm labor in America. I was maybe the last generation, but I think half of our agricultural labor done in America is children. They just are, you know, the children of Mexican migrants and you know other migrants. So I, I think people have are, have turned a blind eye. Uh, Will Sue talks about it in issue nine. He's like, you know, people don't want to know where their meat comes from. They just want that meat on their plate, basically. Mm-hmm. We don't want to know what happens on a farm. We don't want to know where our food comes from, and uh, and that's part of the major problem with the world too. Now is like there's not a acknowledgement of uh, the labor and the practices that go into the things we
1: consume. I do have a little story to tell there, just in response to that point of yes, people tend to not be interested in where their food comes from, but if you're a kid growing up in China. One of the earliest poems you get taught is actually about uh, where food comes from. It describes farmers or peasants in the ancient times that uh, when they're harvesting uh, at noon in a very hot day, the condition is so harsh that you have sweat literally dripping down into the soil. And at the end of the poem, it's a rhetorical question that asks, do you know that every grain of rice in your meal uh, is harvested from extremely hard work. And if you speak Mandarin, you've probably figured out that the title of this thousand-year-old little poem is 敏農, or Sympathy for the Farmers. 除何日当午, Dzień May we always remember where our food comes from. So wow. I think, yeah, it's a very, you know, fundamental, simple poem or almost kid story that most, if not every, Chinese kid get told. And I think that's one of the major cultural differences I notice as I, you know, come to a different country and I learn about this different culture is that. I grew up with such a fundamental respect because it's very much, you know, almost drilled into your head that you have a respect for uh, the farmers, the farming population, that agriculture is such a foundation to so many of the, you know, how our world is running because everybody needs to eat. But yeah, that's just a a cool story.
2: Yeah, it's super cool. Please send me that poem like that basically... It articulates everything I've been working on for the last few years better than I could do it. Like that's, that's profound.
1: Yeah. And I think your book is doing that too. Um, not Thank just, you. you know, the story itself, but I've I've also been reading the letters at the end of each issue. The way your story is able to connect and resonate with farmers, not only across the United States, but across the world. I think you have letters from the Netherlands. Has there been most memorable story, uh, from readers of Jensen Roos across the world?
2: Oh, that's a great question. And, and also like, I don't think this series yet has reached the world because, Mm. um, yeah, I'm just doing these comic books right now with a small publisher based out of Minnesota. So it's a pretty Mm. limited range Mm. when the book is a graphic novel. I mean, I'm already starting to work with my foreign publishers on the graphic novel editions. That's when it will finally reach a wider audience. So right now it's pretty limited. Mm. But, uh, oh man, like a standout letter from a reader. I do think a lot of people are st- sort of struggling like with this sense of, uh, especially in America, and then maybe this you feel in contrast to, like China has so much history and there's a pride and, and reverence for that history. America's always been about wiping out what came before. People were fleeing whatever oppression they had, uh, I guess the initial settlers in Europe, to start from scratch here. And they didn't want any memory of where they came from. And that's sort of how this country has proceeded since then. And so like, I didn't know my grandparents, you know, my, my family never told me anything. My parents never told me anything about their families. So I have no idea of my sh- heritage. This was a chance for me to sort of dig into like some sense of where I came from, even though I, I still really have none. Uh, and I'm hearing that from a lot of readers, that same sort of, especially American readers. like. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about where I'm from or what my... I know I hated the town I grew up in and I had to get away from there, you know. That's a very universal experience too. This guy, one of these guys from Netherlands was talking about he grew up in a rural town in the Netherlands and he, can, he can't he can go back there. It's just too traumatizing for him. As soon as he had the chance, he moved to the big city of Amsterdam and hasn't looked back. So I guess this book is, is sort of a, a testament to where I came from as best as I can excavate it
0: how what has that meant to you i mean to do these autobiographical stories to delve into your past to think about it uh to travel to have these discussions how has that helped you kind of deal with your past um by kind of creating an eye out of it
2: sometimes i refer to blankets as sort of my coming out story uh or i've actually heard it Described that way from queer readers that they identify with blankets because for them it reflects their own coming out story. For me, it was coming out as not Christian to my very fundamentalist Christian parents, um, and these autobiographical projects really force me to have some awkward conversations, you know, with family in real time, you know, that maybe I would avoid. So I mean that has value. I don't know. It's not therapeutic. I can't say that making art is necessary therapeutic. Therapy is therapeutic, you know. <laughs> but uh exercise is therapeutic, but making art is often very painful and just kind of tills up all that discomfort. But there I I do believe that there has to be some sort of uh long-term benefit, you know. Certainly, certainly in terms of, I don't know, self-awareness and self-acceptance, hopefully, ultimately.
1: To be mindful of your precious time. We have this closing segment called Suspenders. So this is where we ask you a fun random question that's unrelated to anything whatsoever. And you can give us any answer you feel like. Okay. And question of the day is, (laughs) if you could have a conversation with any non-human species, which species would you choose and why?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Total accident. No, no, it's great. I mean, mushrooms is the first thing that comes to mind, but I don't know if that's a generic answer. I do think there is something to to fungus being like, you know, and and the spores of fungus maybe having to do with the origins of human consciousness, you know, in that documentary, Fantastic Fungi. There's a theory that the sort of expansion of like the primate brain happened from ingesting probably a psychedelic mushroom. So I don't know. I think there probably is some message that fungus uh, is in dialogue with human consciousness in some way that's a pretty hippie answer though
0: no it's a great answer <laughs> we okay. we love it uh, thank you so much for joining us this was super special super insightful um, really appreciate it
2: of course my pleasure has been mutually expansive for me so thank you guys
0: welcome back to top hat this is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week we had comic book memoir writing extraordinaire, Craig Thompson. Man Kev, you know, I love whenever we get a comic book guest and this one's really cool because it's a really format breaking comic book guest who kind of branches away from the classic, often comic books are related to superhero stories. And even when people take a more nuanced look, it's, think there's like a fictional space. There's something really special about doing memoirs in the form of comic books. Something we've talked about a little bit on the show in the past is that every single type of storytelling format has its own advantages and disadvantages, right? And the biggest mistake you can make is thinking there are good kinds and bad kinds. And then writing off types of storytelling as not appropriate or not artistic enough or not mature enough because then you're locking all these unique ways and Craig Gray shows this in a really great way because Blankets and Ginseng Roots they tell a story through art and text and pacing and release cycles that you couldn't tell in novel form it's just a totally different story and I don't think it it hits the same level, not just because he loves comic books, not because that's an authentic medium to him, but it's a medium he takes seriously, and he leans into it. He leans into the advantages of comic books because there's so much emotion, there's so much subtext you can tell through the art that you can't tell in a novel. Having that control over the coloring and the pacing and the art to give off your emotion and your feeling, not just the factual events that happened, is so crucial to creating that emotional resonance with your reader i think the key lesson here is be very particular about the mediums you use to tell your story
1: yeah and i think jensen risk is a great example that shows the unique advantage of comic especially uh, when released in consecutive uh, issues instead of complete Graphic novel at once is that the author is able to, you know, iteratively collect feedback from their readers and audience, and use that as a basis to improve uh, upon the upcoming issues. And for Jensen and Riz too, because it's such a, it's a nonfiction that is resonating with so many people. When you read the fan letters at the end of every issue it adds color to the stories you're reading in the actual content. And it really leads you to think about the story even more. So the fans, the readers are actually actively contributing to that story. So, yeah, I totally agree that, you know, there are unique advantages to each medium. And certainly in in this case, it's creating a great chemical reaction. And finally, what I think makes this episode so significant is that it is another great example of storytelling being able to connect people in very unexpected ways in this case who have who thought that a story about this herbal plant or roots about the American farming life is going to resonate uh, with so many people including myself who you know i i'm from china i grew up in the city but agriculture and farming is a huge part of the chinese culture and education and upbringing but at the same time it is also i think a great example uh, for everyone to start realizing that the story you have is more interesting and less dull than you think they are. If you're able to tell it, if you're able to tell it well, there are elements within your story that is touching and meaningful that will allow you to connect with other people, that will allow other people to connect with you. And just in general, I look forward to seeing more stories coming out of America or uh, the West in general about farming or the lives and stories outside of big cities
0: it's that, it's that age old thing. If you have a question, there's probably someone else in the room that has that question, right? I think one of the biggest things about storytelling is that you have the power to make people feel seen. You have the power to represent people's stories. You have the power to, to teach someone who might not have any experience like yours, something about your experience and build that empathy. So not only is it creating a world where people who have nothing to do with it can build empathy and learn something, But when you find an audience that's stories aren't being told or being stereotyped or being unfairly told or aren't in these rooms, finding a way to tell those stories authentically allows you to tap into an audience that didn't even realize they were being underserved. And I think we're definitely seeing that right now with all these really interesting niche stories coming out and connecting with these audiences.
1: And... This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe and follow wherever you listen. Leave us a comment and review to let us know what you're thinking. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at lsptpod,
0: LinkedIn, Linen Suit and Plastic Tie. We truly, truly appreciate your time. We absolutely love anyone who takes the time to become a better storyteller and start to find the hidden storytelling behind everything they do. Have a good one.